Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Lisette Baron Carvajal. Today, I will be talking to Drs. Diego Armus and Pablo Gomez about their wonderful edited book titled The Gray Zones of Medicine, Healers and History in Latin America, published by University of Pittsburgh Press in 2021. Welcome, Diego and Pablo. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much, Lisette. Thank you. Okay, so let's start by talking about your personal trajectories. Um, Our listeners would love to hear you talk about your background. Why did you decide to study history? Where are you currently working? How you came to your chosen region of study? And uh, tell us more about uh, perhaps your research interests. So please tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, Uh, I'm Argentinian. I was born in Buenos Aires. I studied, I got my first degree in history at the University of Buenos Aires and a second degree at uh, the University of California at Berkeley. In Buenos Aires, uh, besides teaching, I was working at the Center for Urban and Regional Studies. At that institution, I was mainly focused on issues related to housing, uh, housing of the poor and immigration and uh, labor history, uh, basically in turn of the century Buenos Aires and Rosario, the second city in Argentina. At Berkeley, I, I got very interested in on, on the history of disease from a social and cultural perspective. Yeah. I was not particularly attractive yeah, by the history of medicine per se, but uh, more on these social and cultural dimensions of diseases, pathologies and medicine. Uh, I would say that I discovered uh, this interest after reading uh, Susan Sontag, Rosenberg, Richard Evans, among others. I'm still very interested in the city yeah, as a very promissory site to write uh, history. Yeah. I continue to be very interested and, and committed to, to work on diseases and, and health, but I would say that I consider myself, by and large, an urban social historian. 
I teach at uh, Swarthmore, but uh, I go overseas frequently, uh, offering graduate seminars and undergraduate seminars, especially in Latin American universities. I would say that by design, on purpose, yeah, I try to live a life with one leg in New York City, where I live, and the other one on Latin America. Right. So I guess I will go uh, now. Uh... Uh, thank you uh, very much, uh, Lisette, for inviting us and to talk about our book. And it is really a pleasure being here and being with Diego uh, Armas, uh, whom uh, I have uh, uh, read for a, for a long time and, and who I greatly admire. I, uh, I came to feel, actually, from, in a way, uh, from the other direction that Diego came to it. I was first a physician. I trained as a physician in Colombia uh, as an orthopedic surgeon. And I came initially to the States not to do history, but to work on, on, um, on oncology in orthopedic surgery with the idea of, of going back as an oncologist and orthopedic surgeon to Colombia. But in the process, I, I reconnected with an area that I was had been interested in throughout my life, which is history and philosophies of science and medicine. Uh, and I, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, get into graduate school at, at Vanderbilt, and where I initially came with the idea of a project that uh, looked at the intersections between economic history, the histories of industry in uh, medical implants, and uh, the histories of medicine. And I ended up actually working on a project on the history of uh, ideas about the body related to the African diaspora in the Caribbean. And, and that transition has to do with my own development throughout graduate school. Uh, and I think this is something that is common to many of us. And as Diego was saying, right, like it, it changes as you go through uh, both uh, your studies as you encounter different things and topics and and, uh, but more largely, I think that uh, one common theme to my own trajectory is my interest in, in studying understandings uh, of uh, corporality and how they relate to uh, the making of our own understandings of the world around us. So, uh, and, and in that regard, I think that that fits uh, well with what, what I've been doing over the past 10 years and uh, my current projects. I'm right now working at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, and as Diego, I'm also somebody who uh, has uh, projects, ongoing projects in, in several parts, in both in Latin America and, uh, and in other parts of the world, uh, both with graduate students and colleagues. I'm, I'm part of projects of recovery, and I'm very interested in, in ideas about the rethinking of what we consider to be global histories of science and medicine. Uh, so that is in, in kind of the very short, very short uh, version of, of the, the trajectories uh, up to this point in my life, professional trajectories, I, I should say. Wonderful. And um, it's so great to, I think it's wonderful that we get a sense of uh, of that trajectory. When I listen to this podcast, it's it's great to hear the, the varied ways in which people come to academia. Um, so maybe now because you have mentioned a little bit of your previous work. Um, I would love if you could elaborate a little bit more, especially because the chapters that you both wrote for this for this book uh, are related uh, to that research. And in particular, I'm thinking uh, for, for the case of, of Diego, I'm thinking for uh, the alien city. And, and in Paula's case, I'm thinking about the experiential Caribbean. These are both very influential books in the field and wonderful books. So I recommend them to our listeners. So maybe 
can you tell us a little bit about those books and, and where, where they came from and what they're about? So the Alien City, this is, this is a book that uh, somehow expresses my clear intention to deal with the biological dimensions of health and disease, in this case tuberculosis, but mainly with their social and cultural aspects. Uh, the point of, of departure yeah, of the book was that tuberculosis is more than the Koch bacillus. And, uh, and that context is a crucial dimension to understand tuberculosis. In a way, for me, tuberculosis was a sort of excuse to deal with a broad set of issues. Of course, medicalization of the urban space and society, but also immigration. Buenos Aires is a city that uh, by the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, received millions of, of immigrants. Industrialization, uh, not an industrial city like, let's say, Manchester, but the city with industries. Leisure time and even soccer, yeah? The book has a, a chapter on soccer. But also other issues, expansion of social citizenship, uh, unstable gender relations, and of course, doctors, patients, and the sick in general. Along with these issues of context, I was also very interested in treatments and the many caregivers who are not university diplomat doctors. So somehow my intention was to come up with what I call a total history of tuberculosis in Buenos Aires. Let me stress that I knew perfectly well that that was an aspiration, that total history is no more than the horizon, but for me it was a very motivated yeah, horizon. Uh, the book deals with global and local dimensions of tuberculosis, but I would say that uh, the local dimension predominates and the global is uh, a sort of backdrop. I, I agree with many colleagues uh, that the global dimension is extremely important. I'm totally aware of the global turn yeah, in, in history, in history writing. Uh, but from the beginning, for me, it was clear and it was very, very important to keep my focus on, on the local. Uh, it was a decision. Yeah. Uh, why so? Because with this aspiration of writing a total history of tuberculosis in Buenos Aires, uh, I was totally convinced that the tensions between the total and the global are many, almost mutually exclusionary. Very difficult to write total history when you are doing with the, uh, with the global dimension of this disease. On the other hand, the local and the total get along much, much better. Uh, it's possible at the local somehow to aspire yeah, to write this total history of, in this case, of tuberculosis. Uh, again, that was an aspiration, yeah. I know that there are many, many things that I was not able to address in the book. Among other things, because sources, yeah, are limited, yeah. And we know that we are not writing fiction, yeah. We somehow write using evidence. Uh, and on many issues that for me were extremely important in the agenda, uh, for, for this book, sources were not, uh, were not there. So I have to sacrifice uh, extremely appealing questions, but I didn't have the evidence yet to address them. 
intentionally I decided to finish the book with the arrival of antibiotics, uh, somehow uh, with this sort of uh, medical uh, novelty. The first cycle of uh, modern tuberculosis uh, in Buenos Aires was over. So the, uh, the Experiential Caribbean um, is, is a book that departs from, as I was mentioned before, my interest in evaluating how is that from an understanding of practices around corporality itself, we gain somehow or we, we access a window into how people conceive of their worlds. And more than that, the, the experiential Caribbean is also the part from specific interest in exploring world views and understandings of uh, nature and the human body that go beyond the narratives that uh, we have grown up with and that they have shaped uh, the history of science and medicine as the spaces defined by uh, Eurocentric or Euro-American defined narratives of uh, the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, or process of exploitation, conflict, resistance uh, to Europeans and their projects in the Americas, on the part especially of uh, people on the receiving end of these colonial projects. So in many ways, this experience of Caribbean is an attempt at creating or narrating how you can conceive of projects, an intellectual project, even in the midst of slavery in the 17th century Caribbean, that does not depend on the tenets, right, like of, of the, the usual dynamics of center periphery of or incorporation uh, into a project that is still defined in Europe. Rather, it is it's trying to recover, and, and this is a little bit like, like what Diego is saying, right? Like with the, with the limited sources that we have, how, do, how is that we can think of medicine and medical practices, in this case, heal and healing practices in uh, the uh, in the terms and with, this, with the concepts that the people of African descent had in the original space that the, the 17th century Caribbean that was not defined at all by the world of the plantation that would become normative in the 18th century, but rather a space that is not defined either by the white and black dichotomies or the enslaved, non-enslaved economies that will become so common to talk about enslaved people in, uh, in spaces in the 18th and 19th century in the region. Um, by the uh, late 17th century, especially in the Spanish Caribbean spaces, uh, many people were actually free, They're, they were manumitted, and, and in, it is in, in, in that space where these categories do not function that well of uh, freedom, categories of uh, what is African, what is of African origin, what is of European origin, that you see the emergence of these very, very rich words that I explored are uh, with the very pragmatic, uh, performative use of techniques with excellent results that depend, and this is kind of where the, the title comes from, on how these practices are experienced by uh, the people from the Caribbean, how practitioners themselves base their knowledge and, and that creation of knowledge on something that it is akin to what is felt, what is sense. Well, I, I mean, this I want to emphasize that the sense of being in the world is one that it is defined not by what we will consider to be the, the usual sensorial spaces of the 21st century, but rather by uh, a world that uh, came to your bodies or to uh, 17th century people's bodies through different channels. And, and that included uh, uh, channels that were 
what we'll consider to be all today spiritual in nature. Uh, so th there is there are sort of intersections here uh, between well, in older historiographies we'll consider religious histories and uh, medical and scientific histories, uh, and uh, what I believe are rather spaces, different ways of experiences the natural world and the body. Wonderful. Just a glimpse of that of those two wonderful books that listeners, if you haven't read them, uh, check them out. They're they're great. Um now I I would love us um to talk about this book, right? We're here to talk about the gray zones of medicine. So you mentioned in that acknowledgments that the idea of this book came about after Diego gave a talk in Madison. So tell us more about that. What, why did you come together to edit this book? What inspired you? What sparked uh, your interest in, in this project? Um, did you know you wanted individual chapters to be biographies or did you decide that along the way? How was the writing, editing process? Tell us a little bit about, about all of that. So you're inviting us to talk about the intimacy of the book, yeah? <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> um, so, yeah, as you said, I went to Madison uh, to talk about smoking in Buenos Aires, one of my current uh, projects, cigarette smoking, yeah? Uh, and when the talk yeah, was over, uh, with Pablo, we began to exchange impressions about uh, the state of the historiography of medicine, science, health, and, and disease. And being Pablo, a historian of the colonial period, and myself, one of modern Latin America, we began to identify, to see emphasis, perspectives, approaches, uh, with uh, plenty of limitations, independently of the period, be, let's say, mid-20th century or the 17th century. Yeah. And one of these problematic issues, uh, rarely mentioned yeah, in, the, in the historiography, is that of continuity. Uh, the fact that uh, health and disease issues cannot uh, be discussed only and exclusively as medical problems with the diplomat doctors at the very center. Uh, both in colonial and modern times, las artes de curar, as we say it in Spanish, the ways of healing in English, perhaps this is one way to, to translate artes de curar, both in colonial and modern times, yeah, uh, include, included many other practitioners besides medical doctors. And we were not talking about, let's say, the stereotypical curandero, but practitioners who circulated on the margins inside and outside the realm of diplomat medicine. So we began to imagine this book addressing this main problem how to deal with these margins, how to deal with this gray zone. Pablo, maybe you, you want to add. Yeah, and, and thank you. Yeah, thank you, Diego. And I will also say, right, that, that uh, before I get into kind of answering specifically the question, that one, one of the great things about uh, the project is it has been very, very easy to, to work with, uh, with Diego on this. And, and partially it's because from the go, this is a project that starts as a, Conversation as a conversation, as como se dice right? Like give and take uh, that, uh, that it didn't have uh, uh, one specific or one unique outcome, kind of uh, somehow inscribing in our minds at the beginning. And because it was conversational, this is true of, of, of the way in which the project evolved, it became something that really linked and invited the. Uh, and I think that is the, that is the, the way in which the project ends up being 
something that is much more coherent in nature, paradoxically, because it, it allows wildlife for the creation of a space of encounter. And, and that, is, that was true of both Diego and myself, and, and I think of the people that came uh, with intentionality, with the intentionality of share and then link these histories, these seemingly disparate histories into something that uh, would allow us to make an intervention, which is what we wanted for the book. And I think uh, that uh, to uh, to the extent that it is possible to do so in uh, with these sort of projects uh, we, we do. And, and one aspect of this, as Dick was saying, is that usually biographies are, and this is something that was intentional, biographies are intended to examine what was supposed to be the, the characters, historical actors were well, intellectual intellectually and professionally defined um, histories that fit within the specific boxes of official medicine and what we understood very clearly from the go is that the, many of these vacuums that we were you know discussing in the literatures of uh, healing practices in Latin America had to do with the fact that these post kind of marginal people were in reality not the majority a large percentage of the people who were practicing, uh, medicine or practices related to healing in the region from the 16th century up to the 21st century. And that the trajectories of, of these people specifically would al allow us to talk about not only histories of medicine and science, but also the history of Latin America itself in a different way. And that, that, is, that, that was a great opportunity here through that intervention, through telling these specific histories and also underscoring the importance of these actors, Riley, of opening up that world. So it is intentional that it is biographies, not only as a way of saying this history, this, these historical actors matter as well, but it's also to signal that it is through these personal histories that we can see those spaces that are not only outside of the histories of medicine, uh, but also outside of many uh, of, of the ways in which we analyze and think of uh, more largely and periodize Latin American history. So they are supposedly in the margins or outside of official medicine. And partially, this is also because of sources, as, as we will talk, uh, as I imagine, later. But in reality, it is a matter of perspective. In many ways, they are at the center of the histories of the region. If you look at it and you focus and you train your, your uh, historical tools on that. Uh, Lisette, perhaps I would, have, I would like to add something in the line of what Pablo just said, uh, which is uh, these biographies, um, we, we thought about those these biographies yeah, as a sort of stories. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis uh, trying to convince all the contributors that we want to have a book that is easy to read, a book that somehow will engage the reader, yeah, with a narrative that uh, is not saturated yeah, with references that are not uh, really representative of uh, how much uh, the author yeah, manage and control the topic on which uh, he or she uh, is writing. So I, I want to emphasize that. It seems to me that, correct me, Pablo, if I'm wrong, probably not, uh, that Pablo and, and, and myself, we are totally convinced that it's very important to write history that can reach a broader uh, audience. And in order to do that, you have to write clearly, you have to somehow help the reader yeah, to understand what you are saying. And, uh, and this is, unfortunately, a serious problem yeah, in academic writing. The idea that you are not 
commit idea uh, to deliver a product that somehow will be easily absorbed by an undergraduate student, for instance. I, I totally agree, Diego. Uh, and I will add also that uh, this task is also intentional in trying to avoid sort of a large historiographical discussion. Uh, it is intentional also because the categories that uh, dominate the historiography are really, we felt, not appropriate to talk about these women and men, uh, the, the ones that we are talking. So in many ways, by by trying to make an intervention and showing how these histories open up all these different narratives about the region, you are also trying to open a, a space that uh, speaks and talks differently, right, about how and in what ways can we actually narrate, as they were saying, um, histories of medicine that are, are accessible, uh, that are rich, uh, and that uh, are, again, as, as, as we were discussing, that uh, even though they are coming from all over the place in Latin America, they do speak to each other in important ways. Um, and I think you you did edit a book that is very accessible, that is read easily, and that is engaging. So I think you accomplished that goal wonderfully. But also you made very important interventions uh, within the literature, right? So I, I really appreciate that as well. So now, I mean, you've told us about the title of the book and it is so telling, right? It, this this book is about these gray zones of medicine. Yeah, it's about health practitioners that thrive in a gray space between legality and criminality. You say this in the introduction. It's about the trajectories they follow and the interstitial spaces they inhabited. Um, so I would like us to talk a little bit about those categories and dichotomies. Um, so you tell us in the book that even though you use those dichotomies, you also are questioning them all the time. Um, this book is also about questioning distinctions between Western and non-Western or between learned medicine versus popular medicine or between European, indigenous African. You're saying that this, these distinctions are really hard to, to pinpoint or to maintain. And then there are some categories that, you know, scholars have proposed to understand the relationship between medical systems such as hybridity, acculturation, appropriation, mestizaje, but th that those words are also limited. So I wonder about how you manage and how you struggled with those categories and how how you also question them even if at times you use them um so tell us a little bit about that and perhaps the title is a is a good entry point into that question yeah th thank you uh lisette um this is uh, one of the things again and i think it was one of the parting points of those conversations that that we had here in madison and it is the fact that we have uh, as we uh, indicated in the book a uh, uh, cornucopia of terms to talk categorize and, and somehow congealing in, in ways that become apparent the results of these encounters where they were coming, exchanges around healing cultures. Uh, and one of the things that is true is that the limits of these analytical categories that somehow depend right, like on identifying quote unquote traditional medical systems that can be contrasted to uh, other broadly defined space that is called Western medicine. And we do know that uh, uh, that these terms are, are not only inappropriate, but in many cases, uh, they, they do violence uh, to uh, the, the histories of the people that we study, right? Like that 
there is not such a thing as a traditional, uh, I don't know, uh, Muisca uh, system that we can identify through a large uh, historical trajectory or in um, West African and West Central Africa. And this is something that historiography has discussed uh, as such. And, and that when we were talking about mestizo medical systems, so we're talking about all other sorts of mixtures, right? Like hybridity, creolization, we still depart and think about like different different degrees of mixture of of these uh, artificial uh, artificial labels somehow. And, and the other thing that not to talk about the the intersections between allopathic medicine, uh, biomedicine, and and other sorts sorts of practices that when when you examine the the, the history that we have in in this volume, you see that they're making almost a, a ample use of, of practice coming from all these spaces and and depending on, on, on epistemologies and, and ontologies ways of being in the world and seeing the world that do not certainly fit with these patterns and that that this is true not only of practitioners but also of clients of patients themselves right like the the, the distinction between western and the western that you were talking learn medicine popular medicine they really do, do not talk about the categories or or, or somehow dynamics that really matter that much for the people that uh, that we're discussing. So this is why the, the gray zones here functions. So we're signaling that the, the porosity, the elastic borders that we were uh, dealing with in the book. And uh, and finally, the, the, the other thing that I will say is that historically too, right? Like the, the sort of uh, narratives, right? Like that, that, that we have uh, in terms of uh, the development of, uh, of a certain kind of teleology, right? Like that goes into and so sort of more black and white space in, in, in the 20th century where biomedicine is dominant. And I'll let Diego talk a little bit about this. It's also something that, that is artificial in nature, right? Like even today, right? like thinking about the, not only what is legal or illegal, but is what is biomedical, not biomedical, does that speak about how health and health practices are are deployed, right? Like in spaces that are not defined by by legality, and this is also something that uh, became very evident, right? Like with the, even uh, during the past year with the COVID nineteen pandemic. So I don't know if Diego wanna 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 say something about that that specific uh, kind of central analytical space that we uh, develop here. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I would say that, uh, and I would like to. To believe yeah, that all the contributors in the book are on the same page as Pablo and myself on this. Yeah. So I'm not going to include them, yeah. But I think that I can speak on behalf of Pablo and myself on this issue. Yeah. We were a little bit tired of labels. Yeah? Uh, so from the beginning, yeah, uh, we have this sort of effort yeah, to questions, yeah, uh, labels. Uh, and in that way we come up with the idea of the gray zone, yeah. This, uh, the dichotomies, yeah, organize medical practices, uh, but not all, of, not all of them are very well organized, yeah. Uh, many of these dichotomies end up shaping corsets. And these are, after all, theoretical constructions, yeah, these, these dichotomies, these labels. Uh, and we know that theoretical constructions, yeah, tend to simplify the reality, to skip ambiguities, for instance. The Western, non-Western label, yeah ignore processes of adjustments and negotiations. Spanish-European medicine crosses the Atlantic and confronts the new world that will influence the new settings and will be influenced by it. 
when doctors of the Rockefeller Foundation at the beginning of the 20th century uh, wanted to define malaria in Brazil, for instance, yeah, they had to negotiate with local practitioners. Uh, practitioners with uh, university training or practitioners who have no university training at all. So what is, is, is coming out from these negotiations, yeah, the negotiations that we want to, to address in, in each, in each chapter, yeah, is basically a hybrid product. Yeah? Uh, and here again, uh, we have to deal with theories and labels. Uh, you mentioned some of th- those uh, labels. Uh, that's why I think that we decide to quote yeah, in the introduction, in one of the few quotes, yeah, Peter Burke, uh, the great uh, British historian, yeah, when he says that uh, there is a sort of cornucopia of labels competing among them. At the end, what, uh, what I think that we have is the mix, the negotiated and renegotiated healing practices that are at the very core of each chapter, of each uh, story that this book offers. So somehow an effort to avoid labeling, an effort uh, to deal with theory, uh, but uh, with a lot of common sense and the sort of celebration of the mix, yeah, this sort of, again, gray zone. And I will say one, one last thing here is that uh, it also, uh, the parts that this, this effort, the parts of my recognition of the uh, something that we historians know very well, the limitations of the records that we have and how they actually portray a world that it was far more fluid, far more mixed, uh, uh, far more kind of in the in-betweens that, that they, both the legal, the colonial, uh, the professional records that we use for our histories, which is what survived actually will let us to believe. So we, the, the, the historians we also invite to, be part of these projects are people that are very interested in in reading in between uh, and trying to recover those inter- interstitial spaces themselves. So and, and trying to use what we have of historical records to do so. Great. Let's question labels. I'm I'm all down for that. <laughs> so perhaps now we can talk about some of the chapters uh, to kind of get a sense of of what you're doing. And I would like us to start by talking about what each of you wrote. So perhaps we can start with Pablo, because it's the first chapter of the book, listeners, just to flag it to you. Um, so you tell us the story of Domingo de la Ascension, and you use this individual to talk about the Criollo healing culture of the 17th century Caribbean. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about Domingo, who he was? Um, why did you write about him? here in this book. And um, I think it could be really useful for our non-historians audience. I hope there's a lot of non-historians listening to us. Um, If you can explain how is it that we get to know so much about Domingo and about his healing practices? Um, You know, why was he prosecuted by the Inquisition, for example? Um, Also, perhaps, uh, Paolo, I hope I'm not making too many questions. I, I, I usually make too many questions. But why do you argue at the end of the chapter that Domingo's case demonstrates that the histories of healing that emerged from the black cosmopolitan communities of the 17th century of Caribbean locales do not travel through the usual channels of the survival of African tradition? What is different from this story? Well, thank you, Lisette. Uh, and I will try to be brief here. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of questions, but very interesting one and very important ones. Um, I will say that I will start with the last question because it kind of links to what we were discussing before. Uh, and uh, as I said before, I was interested in 
how is that the, uh, what is produced in the 17th century Caribbean uh, in terms of, of healing uh, beliefs and practices, it is really a product of the region, of the exchanges happening in the region that do not depend on all world histories for uh, their historiographical importance. And I, and I use the, the term African inspirations both in my book and in this chapter to talk about not traditions per se, Right, like many of the people uh, that I examine or that I talk about in the in, in the chapter are people that have been living in uh, the Caribbean, in this case in Cuba, as, as it was the case of Miguel Atencion, for generations. So what was going on in the in, in the Caribbean that allowed us to to see a vibrant healing culture that does not uniquely need to be defined in reference to West or West Central African um, narratives that, in by and large, are built up on studies that come from the uh, 19th, 20th century uh, and, and through what Stefan Pamier called analytical interfaces that has to do with anthropology. Can we talk about a history that is Caribbean in nature, that is that depends on a blackness of the Caribbean, an Africanness or a blackness that does not need to go back to the Atlantic for uh, legitimization? So that is what it was interesting for me and important about. Uh, Domingo and, and that Criollo healing culture, a Criollo healing culture that involves and incorporates practices that, that are being deployed there by people of European origin, Spaniards, but other multitude of Europeans that are arriving in the Caribbean, uh, both from North and Central Europe, uh, French, uh, British, Dutch, uh, and also the persistence of Amerindian traditions, uh, both in Cuba and throughout the, the northern part of uh, of uh, uh, what today is South America, other Caribbean islands, and Mesoamerica. That this is a space that is in constant flux, that is only Spanish in the imagination of, of Spaniards. So th that is that is what really this this chapter is about. Is uh, I will say that is one of the richest records that we have of any healer uh, of African descent in the 17th century in general. And I will say I will make that statement for the entire Atlantic. We don't have many many records like these, uh, and, and they are part of a, almost an historical accident, right? like, which is the existence of the Holy Office, uh, the Inquisition Office in Cartagena de Indias that was uh, founded in 1610 with the intention of prosecuting Protestants and, uh, and people of uh, Jewish descent or, uh, that were arriving in the Caribbean and, and that uh, were part of a larger process of imperial slash religious competition in the midst of the Counter-Reformation. But as a side product of this, you, had, you see the, the prosecution of what was considered to be dangerous practices, right? Like, or blasphemy. Many of the cases here are related to blasphemy or to heterodox practices that uh, seem to be religious in nature, which is why we have the case of Domingo La Ascension. Most cases here, as Domingo's one, were the result of professional competition. And in all likelihood, he ended up being there because of the denunciation of practitioners like uh, barber surgeons that uh, uh, were seeing their clientele go uh, to Domingo de la Ascension. And that was the case with many other um, healers of African descent in the region that ended up in front of the Inquisition. And it is very rare because uh, uh, sort of the Inquisition records, because they allow us to hear, even though there are some, somehow those the words of these people are coming through the Hanafa uh, and a scribe in, in the Spanish colonial system, it is as close as we can get to their voices. We don't have uh, records like this from uh, coming from 
other uh, spaces in the Atlantic. Even even for Brazil, uh, many of, of the inquisition cases of Brazil are, or the large processes of the they're coming from uh, Portugal, not really from the Caribbean itself. So it, they depend on kind of a space where uh, the accused have been living in, the, in the, that inquisitorial space for months before they actually appear in front of inquisitors. That is not the case in the Caribbean. The, in, in some cases, this is a matter of days and weeks before they, they actually speak. So it is really unique. Uh, these records are really unique. Uh, and they allow us to speak in, in ways that I don't think will be possible in other spaces about those that were appealing and, and healing. And that is what I wanted to try. That's what I was trying to do with, with the chapter. Yes, they are unique and they are wonderful and rich. And the chapter is just a wonderful story, listeners. So I, I really encourage you to go and read it. Um, so maybe now we can move to, to Diego. And let's talk about Jesus Puello, the modern Argentine pastor of the 1930s and 1940s. So Diego, tell us who, who was he and, and why did you write about him? Uh, one of the things that I found fascinating about this chapter is that oh, you, although you write about a period in which biomedicine had emerged and gained a somewhat dominant status, uh, though we, with our discussion about you know labels and these things, you know, we have to question this this dominancy of, of biomedicine. But here in this chapter, you're talking about tuberculosis in years in which there was a lot of biomedical uncertainty. And you're reminding us that uncertainty is a way, always a part of medicine, as the COVID-19 pandemic also has, has made very clear. So tell us a little bit more about this and about the popular support that uh, Jesus Puello's tuberculosis vaccine had. Um, I also was very intrigued about, uh, fascinated about the role of the press. Um, thinking again about sources as a historian, right? Uh, one of the striking difference, of course, between your chapter and that of Pablo is the sources you're, you're each dealing with. And here in your story, the press is very important. Uh, but it's also, it's very important Puello's texts because he wrote and published uh, his his own side of the story, if you will. So tell us a little bit about about the story, Diego, please. Uh, yeah, I think that you got it right. Yeah, it's uh, if there is a core yeah in this story is the issue of uncertainty, uh, a moment in which uh, official medicine, yeah, biomedicine, yes, was not able to produce an efficient uh, answer to a disease that has been killing uh, people for decades. So we are in a moment yeah, in the 1930s, 1940s, in which uncertainty somehow dominates the experience of tuberculosis for both physicians and also the sick. Uh, it is in this context, in the context of uncertainty, that I wanted to explore what is going on with initiatives that were coming from Buenos Aires, a very cosmopolitan city, but a city that was not at the very center of production of science in the 1940s. The, the, the very centers of production of science were in Europe and, in the, to a certain extent, in the US. So here on the, on the margins, yeah, what we have is these assistants yeah, at the university, a microbiologist, yeah, who is making the point that he has an efficient cure for tuberculosis, a TB vaccine. Yeah? 
Uh, an important consideration here is that we have, we have been dealing yeah, with TB vaccines yeah, since uh, the end of the 19th century. Yeah. And all of these vaccines were not uh, efficient. Yeah. So the context yeah, is, is a good context yeah, to come up with the idea that yeah, this guy, Jesus Puello, uh, a guy who was, uh, was unable to finish uh, his studies at the University of Buenos Aires, uh, was ready to offer this uh, solution for uh, thousands of people suffering uh, TB. So in this very uncertain context, what we have is this offering, yeah, an offering that was uh, almost immediately rejected yeah, by the establishment of the medical profession. Some doctors yeah, receive yeah, the, the vaccine uh, with uh, some kind of expectations yeah, and even use the vaccine. But the establishment was very, very reactive, yeah, but were at the same time quite silent. Well, this is what? Another vaccine that somehow is promising a solution to tuberculosis, yeah, and quite soon will die out. The issue became very, very interesting when the press became yeah, an actor in the story of the Puello vaccine uh, in, in Buenos Aires and to a certain extent uh, in, uh, in Argentina, but it was mainly Buenos Aires. An important issue here is, the, is what kind of press we are talking about. Yeah, we are talking about magazines and, and newspapers, very, very modern. Yeah. Modern in the sense of very interested in offering to the reader engaging stories yeah, and also speaking yeah, on behalf uh, of the readers. Um, so here what we have is the press yeah, somehow uh, making a point that those who are suffering tuberculosis yeah, are entitled to try with this vaccine that the establishment does not approve, yeah, but uh, is innocuous, yeah, okay? Uh, so it is in this sort of very peculiar scenario in which we have, on the one hand, the establishment very reactive yeah, to the vaccine. On the other hand, a pueblo, a marginal voice in the scientific and medical circles of Buenos Aires, and a modern press extremely active, trying to use the novelty of the so-called Puello vaccine yeah, in order to do their own business, but also to speak on behalf of the poor tuberculars. Um, Puello, time and again, tried to be part of the establishment, tried to be recognized and accepted by the establishment, but he didn't succeed. Uh, he even wrote a book, yeah, the book that was published, uh, republished six times, yeah, and even the I think that he paid for these uh, uh, these editions, yeah, and the name that he chose, yeah, for the publishing house, yeah, was Ediciones Científicas. So this is clearly a guy who somehow was ostracized, yeah, by the medical medical establishment, and it was celebrated, yeah by the sick, because the sick knew that the medical establishment up to that point was not able to deliver any convincing a solution to uh, their disease. Yeah. So here what we have is a story in which we have, on the, uh, in terms of historical sources, yeah, uh, we have the press, printed media, uh, we have the writing yeah, of, the, of the protagonist, the main protagonist, Jesus Puello, who writes yeah, in a sort of uh, language that, that is the language of academia. Uh, is the language of the physicians who are criticizing them. Yeah, and uh, and out of this situation, yeah, uh, also we have uh, the voices of the of the sick. My last comment, just to finish with this, I one of the things that I want to do when I write history of diseases, yeah, is to try to catch the voice of the sick. 
Uh, it seems to me that there is plenty of history of medicine, history of diseases, history of public health that somehow needs to incorporate uh, the, the perspective of the seed. Uh, this event, the Pueyo vaccine, the so-called uh, Argentinian Pasteur, quote-unquote, this is the way in which the sick were labeling, uh, the sick and the, and the journalists, of course, were labeling uh, Pueyo, yeah? somehow uh, help us to get closer yeah, to uh, how... Uh, the sick, the patient, uh, were living uh, their diseases. And I make, this is my final comment, I make distinction between patients and, and sick people. Patients are those who somehow are very, very well situated in, uh, in the realm of, of official medicine. Uh, the sick yeah, could be in and out of uh, the official medicine, yeah, uh, alternative solutions, yeah, proposals, and so on. Thank you. Those are very useful uh, points, I think, for for thinking about the history of medicine in a in a broad sense. Um, so, of course, we cannot cover every chapter of this book, um, especially because we want to leave uh, something for our listeners to go and find out when they buy the book. Um, so, I'm going to drop or throw out there two big themes I see present in the book, and. I encourage you to talk to you know whatever speaks to you. So first, and because I'm I am interested in my work is about female practitioners and gender. So first, that is the first topic I'm, I'm thinking about, and we have to talk about women and gender. And the contributors of the book, many of them talk about uh, women, female practitioners, healers. Um, so what what were the roles of women in these great zones of medicine? Can do you can you think of a chapter that I don't know if that sparked your your interest a lot, and you want to share with our with our listeners. Um, and then the second the second topic is race, right? This is very general, but in this volume, you're dealing with racialized subjects in a way, um, subjects that I mean that are prosecuted differently because of the race, or that experience healing different because they are racialized and. I just wonder if there's any chapter that you think uh, you can you can think of and 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 you think our listeners will find useful or or interest and to, just to clarify, of course, these two categories are not independent; they work together, as many of the chapters actually sh illustrate. So, but I just wonder what what do you what do you think of these two topics? So I can I can I can um, start answering this this question and uh, uh, maybe Diego if he wants. Can complement uh, gender, of course, was uh, something that was uh, very important for us, and and I think partially one of the uh, uh, the ways in which the book traverses uh, uh, kind of uh, and goes beyond the sort of limitations imposed precisely by the categories that uh, that we were discussing before, uh, and going beyond those categories allow us to see how many many. Uh, of uh, these actors in these spaces that, as I mentioned before, make up what for me are kind of the larger histories of healing uh, practice, the larger histories of ideas about the body in Latin America, uh, and I will say more largely in the world, really, uh, are uh, not only uh, they, they, they have women as protagonists uh, on both sides, both as practitioners themselves, but also as part of that, the community that is shaping those ideas themselves. And this is very evident in several of the chapters that we have. I will signal 
uh, but I will point out to three of these chapters, chapter 12, uh, the chapter on Doña Emilia uh, Diego, which, which has a Zapotec healer and an entrepreneur and a social activist uh, in, in modern Mexico. This is a history that is contemporary in nature. It's a chapter by Gabriela Soto Laveaga, and that, that it speaks in many ways to the same concerns right, like that we have about this woman that is traversing the political, social, uh, and professional space uh, in ways that would have been unrecognizable we were just thinking about the, only the legality and illegality of certain aspects of, of uh, medical practice themselves, right? Like, or if we were thinking about healing practices only from the point of view of what we consider to be a biomedicine itself, a trajectory that, that doesn't put her into just one narrative, right, about a professional physician uh, being involved in the founding of a specific medical practices in, in Mexico itself. This is not Doña Emilia, and yet, Emilia Diego, I think, is a, is a history that is much more important and represented than many of the biographies of, of 20th century doctors in, in Mexico itself. Same thing can be said about the, the chapter about Adam Warren and, and Doña Dorotea Salguero and uh, competition and the, the large following that she had in early Republican Peru. Histories that I usually told about the Facultad de Medicina in San Marcos, uh, for instance, and, and prosecution of unlicensed, uh, usually male uh, practitioners. So uh, the fact that we have the case of Dorotea Salguero here, even with the limited information, opens up a world that, uh, that we don't usually see and a different set of uh, not only of patients, but also of practice that also gender in nature. Uh, it, it is also, for instance, the case of Maria Garcia, that many of, uh, this is the indigenous healer in 18th century Guatemala that Martha Few uh, talks about it is uh, many of the patients of uh, of this woman were women themselves. So if we don't pay attention to these narratives, to these biographies, to these spaces, we also miss that larger world. This is and the final thing that I will say about this specific aspect of your question. They said is that these histories, all especially the the case of Emilia Diego and, and Dorotea, also kind of ask us to walk away from the idea that woman healers only heal women are all important for that space. That This is not the case for Emilia or for Dorotea. Their practices, uh, they go beyond those gender binaries and other categorizations that we wanted also to, to go beyond. Uh, at the same time that, for instance, the, the case of Domingo de la Ascension or uh, the uh, spaces of Kalundu, examined by, by Jim Sweet in Chapter 3, uh, involve uh, practitioners and communities made both of women and men. Um, so uh, just just wanted to to emphasize this now about ethnicity and and this I'm going to be brief because obviously ethnicity and representations of ethnicity as I was mentioning before in my answers are at the core of what we examine here and how we historiographically categorize these people. Um, so Jim Sweet's chapter talking about Kalundu and the long history of Kalundu challenges preconceptions about the emergence of these. Afro-Atlantic religious complexes and healing concepts in relationship with ideas about Africanness, Blackness, especially because Brazilian, in many cases, people of European descent, non sometimes, as a matter of fact, were also participants in those early 18th and 19th century spaces of the formation of Kalundu as a practice. The work of Alberto Ortiz and Mauricio Gaston also talks of the complexities of thinking about Blackness in a 20th century Caribbean and Dominican Republic that, that is racist on its own, right? Like, uh, uh, in which blackness has different contours than the ones that we usually assume it has, especially in South America or Mesoamerica. 
And the same can be said about uh, the work of Victoria Estrada and Jorge Marquez Valderrama talking about the representation of, uh, uh, of uh, indigeneity uh, in her examination of the Hillary Indio Rondin in early 20th century Colombia and the many facets of both ethnicity and the import importance of uh, assuming that ethnicity in the crafting of healing practices or the case of uh, Chinese healer and their patients and those communities that are created in Lima, in Peru, uh, in the late 19th century and the first decades of the, the 20th century, who are the practice, how uh, ethnicity uh, becomes a part of, again, ideas about the materiality of medicine itself, how it is embraced, uh, but it also creates spaces of uh, uh, discrimination, but also professional opportunities uh, and how uh, practitioners and patients themselves uh, move around and in between these categories. So uh, the, as, as you were saying, um, said this is at the center of the book and, and it is in many ways, uh, as I was saying before, part of those elastic categories that, that both practitioners, healers and patients uh, uh, traverse in ways that might not seem to be uh, evident, at least in the ways that they have been portrayed in other narratives of the history of medicine in Latin America. I don't know if one, Diego wants to add something to this. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, so gender and race. Perhaps I will be an old-fashioned historian, but I would like to also include class. Yeah. And, great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a um, that's a great addition. Yes, I agree. Uh, and the, and I I will do it. Yeah, just focusing on the um, on the cover of the book. Actually, we decide to use. This cover I like a lot. Yeah, it's a painting by Jose Guadalupe Posada. Yeah, that is included in the chapter written by Jetro Hernández Berrones about Francisco Madero. Yes, the Madero, the president, uh, who used to be a practitioner of homeopathy. And the the, the illustration yeah, of um, Guadalupe Posada is a very very telling illustration. Yeah, here what we have is uh, the the house. Of, with a big yeah, sign on top of the uh, of the entrance of the house, who says "Medico, cirujano, partero, alopata y homeopata." But the most interesting thing is that all the guys who are trying to get into this house are coming from very different social sectors. Uh, you have the typical peasant. Yeah, we have women, women uh, from the bottom of society, women from the elite. Uh, we have. Uh, people who look like uh, professionals, emerging middle classes, yeah, and so on. Uh, the, the point that I want to make is that what happened with these um, practitioners yeah, in the gray zone yeah, is not just something that is relevant uh, for, the, for the poor, those who have less resources yeah, to access to the official institution of university medicine. Uh, back in the 17th century or even today, uh, what we have is that these practitioners, uh, these healings, yeah, are part of the life of both people from the elite and people from the uh, poor sectors of society. Yeah, in different circumstances, in different contexts, uh, they might be uh, using this as a resource, yeah, to uh, take care of their of their health. Yeah, so. Along with uh, race and gender, again, let's keep in mind that both yeah, wealthy people and, uh, and low-income people, yeah, centuries ago and in the present, 
also have these healers yeah, as part of their, their horizon yeah, in terms of uh, potential uh, health providers. Can, can I add just one last thing here that I think is uh, important? And it is the fact that what, uh, what Diego has mentioned about the chapter of, of Jeter Hernandez is also true about the chapters by Dana Maria uh, Vertucci about uh, uh, healers in Sao Paulo and the pharmacies and herbs, roots, and amulets that are being sold in these spaces. And they believe in people like uh, San Vicente uh, that go beyond those usual lines that we, we ascribe. And even the, the chapter by George Jose Reyes in, in, uh, in the, the biography of Domingo Sodres, uh, a very, very important famous healer uh, that was enslaved himself in uh, Rio de Janeiro, right? Like, so uh, that clientele uh, and, and the narratives that they, they are created, they, they go beyond those uh, distinctions that, as, as Diego has mentioned, uh, seem to focus you know, ideas about quote unquote popular medicine um, people uh, with, without important economic resources. That was not true. And I think that uh, in addition to talking about the, the ethnicity, gender, a class is also something that goes through many of, of the contributions here. Thank you, Diego, for, for adding that. It, it's, it's very important. And you're right that, that, you know, that's what you're pointing us towards in, with the cover of the book, which is was really nice. Listeners, uh, Google it. Um, so, okay. So I've taken too much of your time and we've, I think we've covered our, a lot of ground and listeners have had the chance to experience the richness of this volume, but I cannot let you go without asking the COVID question, the pandemic question. Um, so it must have been a little bit surreal writing this book and editing it, writing the chapters, editing this book while everything was happening around you. Um, so I'm thinking, I'm thinking about these gray zones of medicine that continue to exist today, as you've been telling us in this interview. And I don't know, you've you've mentioned, yeah, they've become more salient in a way, in a way visible perhaps for some. So I'm thinking about those people who have decided to not be vaccinated because they don't trust the science and they have chosen other remedies. And I'm also thinking about ivermectin, which in the last few weeks I've, I've read a lot of things about ivermectin and, and uh, alternative treatments that people have defended, even if health boards or centers for disease control have stated that they are not effective and that can be even be dangerous. So, so what can you tell us about, I, I don't know, these perils of... <laughs> of these gray zones of medicine, I don't know if I would call it that, but what 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 are you thinking when you were writing this book and like living this pandemic that has changed our lives? I would say that it was indeed surreal to write for many, many, many reasons, right? Like to write this book in the midst of a pandemic. But I think it fits perfectly well within this narrative. And 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 it actually uh, uh, what seems to many uh, of us in, in academia or that uh, work and live in the medical world, I myself was trained as a physician, uh, my wife is a physician, uh, as it is the case also for Diego. Uh, sometimes if we tend to believe in the all encompassing somehow uh, life-changing ways in which uh, biomedicine creates and structures our world. But biomedicine has never existed outside of the trajectories and social spaces that we historicize in this book. And this is because of what constitutes healing and healing cultures is not only about the body, but encompasses everything, all aspects of life, right? Like, and that is the political, the social, the cultural, 
embodiment is, 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 is the flesh itself uh, materializes all these aspects uh, that we seem to believe are, are they exist in, in, in different realms. So the, the ways in which we conceive uh, of biomedicine as explaining corporality so efficiently tends to forget that it only explains certain aspects of corporality that might not be convincing in other ways to people, right? Like that people have other ways to understand and feel and see the world. And the other thing is that biomedicine or science in general, right? It never actually was intended to provide answer to the big questions of the whys, right? Like it is in, in many ways, this processual nature is interested in, in talking about uh, phenomena and, and what are the best ways of proceeding not with final answers, right? Like, but uh, uh, with uh, what we think of as as a, a specific ways, uh, pragmatic ways of of dealing with the instances of the consequences of the larger big questions that people are interested in. Yes, in certain areas of the world, yeah, we have a very very strong opposition to vaccines. Not everywhere, uh, and I would say that this is perhaps a very peculiar phenomenon of a moment a social and cultural moment in which important sectors of society yeah, are becoming quite skeptic of science. But this is not always the same. Yeah? I mean, this, this is something that is very peculiar of this time, uh, the beginning of the 21st century. Yeah? If I return to my chapter, yeah, the tuberculars were desperate to get uh, the Pueyo vaccine because they want to believe that that was a solution. The point that I want to make is that we cannot deal with these issues. Yeah, now issues that are somehow dominating our life in the context of the pandemic. Yeah, as something that has been the same throughout history. Uh, pandemics in plural yeah, are not particularly useful as a way to understand the relationship between the environment and society and culture. Yeah. We have to talk about specific pandemic and not pandemics in, in general. So that's, uh, this is perhaps the, the strong point that I want to make, Elisette, yeah. Yes, we are dealing with the COVID, but this is one pandemic and this is quite different yeah, than the way in which other societies in different times have been dealing with novelties coming from science or coming from the gray zones. Yeah. So, yeah, this issue of a continuity, no doubt, yeah, but changes yeah, within this, uh, this continuity. Yeah, and, and I want to just emphasize what Diego says there, right? Like, I think the point here is that biomedicine, right, like it is also exists within that continuity, right? Like, and, but that, that it has to be contextualized. It, it is part of a, a process of answers, right? Like that of which we have had, as they were saying, we need to put into uh, that historical space every time we're thinking about him uh, historically, right? Like, but that it has not provided kind of a, a definitive uh, answer to uh, these uh, processes. In, and the same thing can be said about pandemics. Wonderful. I think there's a lot of food for thought in those answers. So thank you. Thank you for those for those reflections. Um, I mean, lastly, just to say goodbye, you know, before I let you go, uh, what are you working on right now? What are your current projects? I'm, I'm finishing, actually next year, yeah, will come out a book on Buenos Aires, published by Duke. Uh, part of the Buenos Aires Reader, the World Cities Collection, yeah. So this is something that I was working a lot yeah, in the last years. Uh, I'm currently also working on a cultural and social history of cigarette smoking in modern Buenos Aires. 
What else? Next year, Fondo de Cultura Económica, and Pablo, this is something that uh, you don't know. Uh, Fondo de Cultura Económica will publish yeah, a similar book to The Great Zone, but focus only on Argentina uh, from mid-19th century to the present. Not sure about the title, perhaps will be Híbridos Argentinos, Pasado y Presente en las Artes de Curar. So I have these, basically, these uh, three, three projects yeah, on my table. And uh, uh, Lisette, I, I'm, I've been working uh, during the past uh, few years on a couple of projects, a uh, uh, book project that uh, is examining the how the history of uh, the slave trade and uh, the epistemologies of the slave trade uh, are fundamental for thinking in terms of uh, both risk and numbers, right, like and calculation of, uh, uh, of a disease that precede the political methods and demographic and epidemiological narratives of the uh, late 17th and uh, 18th century and 19th century that is examining the, the larger world of uh, both the Mediterranean and Atlantic uh, slave trade as a space for the creation of particular types of knowledge uh, that are related to the emergence of biomedicine itself and science as it relates to the body. So that is one of the projects and uh, that is one that has been occupying a lot of my time. I'm also uh, working on a couple of projects, uh, one in the reimagination of the contours of global histories of science, medicine, and technology. This is kind of a larger editorial project in which uh, I'm involved uh, with uh, several colleagues uh, from uh, both US, European universities, and, and we're also going to involve uh, scholars coming from Latin America, Asia, uh, Africa, and Oceania. And uh, um, we're hoping to have some of the first uh, publications of this project uh, coming up uh, within the next uh, year. It's a project that will be accessible online uh, through Cambridge University Press. Um, that is kind of another one of the larger projects. I keep being my involvement, being involved in, in projects of archival recovery in, in South America. And I'm starting a project on histories of uh, uh, that combines legal categorizations of uh, ideas about freedom and ideas about labor as they relate to uh, notions of, uh, of uh, enslavement and belonging, the creation of a moral economy in the, in the Americas throughout the uh, late 17th and into the 19th century. And this is a collaborative project with uh, uh, a colleague at Emory University. Wow, that's, those are a lot of projects and I just can't wait to read them all and to have you here back at, at the New Books Network. So thank you, Diego and Paulo, to be here. And this was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lisette. Muchas gracias.